so Zechariah is the book we're now going to study. It'll take us um, right up to a couple weeks before Easter. And I know what you're probably all thinking. Why in the world would we go through the book of Zechariah? And the answer is, it's cooler than you think it is. Okay, that's kind of become the tagline of the, this, this series we're going to go through. Um, actually, it's, it's funny seeing people's reactions. I was at a small group thing last night for a New Year's deal, and um, someone walked up to me and was like, yeah, I saw we were doing Zachariah. And I was like, why, why are we doing this? I don't want to share that person's name. But when Jessica Lewis said that to me, I thought, what a great, what a great reason to, to remind everyone that this book's way cooler than you think it is. Um, so, but when we do a new book, we like to begin by just giving a lot of background information about the book itself. So we'll do about half the time this morning um, as that kind of an introduction to the book, and then we'll spend the remaining half on the first chapter. So a couple high points here. The author is probably to one's surprise, Zechariah. He was a prophet who returned with the exiles to rebuild the city of Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity. The purpose of the book is he's encouraging Israel to continue rebuilding the city and the temple while reaffirming God's promise to restore and glorify Jerusalem. Uh, There's some interesting features that you should take note of. Uh, First of all, the the book is broken up into two parts. There's chapters 1 through 8, which were written in the second year of King Darius, probably all written right at the same time. And then there's chapters 9 through 14, um, which has a little bit different tone um, than the first eight chapters and was written at a different time. So you'll kind of see two different styles of writing, two different kind of ways he um, addresses the people with those two different parts of the book. Um, There's a lot of really obscure imagery, especially in chapters 1 through 8. You see it in 9 through 14 as well, but especially in the the first bit of this book, we're just going to see a lot of visions and imagery that you're going to hear and you're going to go, what the heck does that mean? Um, it's like one of like a, a woman flying around in a basket and two other women with stork wings carrying her, right? It's just like crazy, far out there stuff. But, but in that, there's some really, really rich imagery that informs our understanding of God and how he's moving, what he's doing. Um, you just have to dig a little bit for it, which I think will be good for us. Um, thirdly, there's a lot of messianic prophecies um, it's been estimated that the New Testament directly or whether quoting a verse or just referencing uh, some speech or an event in the book, that the book of Zechariah is referenced 67 times in the New Testament. Again, in the, in the back half, you're going to see a lot of real, um, if you've been around church for a while, a lot of real familiar messianic prophecies come from this book. Um, there's also a lot of prophecies about the future of Jerusalem. We'll talk about that the kind of the threefold approach to that later, but there's a lot of um, imagery, a lot of prophecies about the future of Jerusalem. Keep in mind when it's when this is written, the city is um, is basically rubble, um, and they're rebuilding the temple. They're trying to rebuild the city, and so there's a lot of prophecies about Jerusalem being rebuilt then and now. But those prophecies also many of them carry over into the future of Jerusalem with Jesus coming and dying there, and also the new Jerusalem spoken of in the book of Revelation. Um, And then I want to look at the background and setting. So this is where we're going to do a lot of history, um, and we're going to have a lot of cross-references to other books of the Bible to help us understand what was going on at the time that this book was written. Um, And so in 605 BC, you have a major world event where the nation of 
Judah or Israel at the time, um, falls to Babylon. And then you've got a prophecy from Jeremiah. But before you read that prophecy, let me kind of catch us up to that point in 605 BC. You guys may know that um, there was a time in Israel's history where they were one of, if not the dominant world power. It was like the peak or the height of their existence as a nation under the rule of King David. God had given them rest on all sides. Um, They were a powerful nation. They were feared by most of those who were around them. They were at peace. They had a king who was leading them well, who was seeking the Lord, leading them to seek the Lord. It's kind of like the, the heyday, right? This is like the good old days for Israel, back when King David was there. It was Israel the way its kingdom was supposed to be. Um, shortly after that, his son Solomon comes along. Solomon does a good job, not, not as good as David. You see the kingdom start to kind of drift into some idolatry and some uh, sinful practices and stuff like that. But by the time the next king comes along, the kingdom basically begins to be divided. And at that point, you've got the northern kingdom, which is called Israel. They kind of took the, the name Israel for themselves. Then you have the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah, named after one of the tribes um, in the southern kingdom. So you've got a divided kingdom. Well, Assyria comes along, and as a method of God's punishment for the northern kingdom's rebellion, Assyria captures the northern kingdom, takes them away into exile. But the southern kingdom with Judah, with the capital city of Jerusalem, is holding in there, right? They're staying strong. But not long after that, God raises up the nation of Babylon as an instrument of judgment to come in and basically destroy the city of Jerusalem, taking away most of the residents of that city to live um, in Babylon as slaves, servants, or citizens there. So that happens in 605 BC. And you can imagine the people of God are wondering, what will become of us? I mean, their their nation has been invaded. It's been plundered. Most of them have been taken away from the the city and the land that they knew and they loved and are now just living in someone else's territory in an unfamiliar place with an oppressive rule and government over them. And they're thinking like, I thought we were God's chosen. I thought we were God's people. Maybe they recognize the sin of their fathers that led them to that point, but they're probably thinking, What's in store for us in the future? What do we now have to look forward to that this other country has taken us over? So you've got this really cool prophecy from Jeremiah right around that time where he, he speaks some hope into their situation as the Lord has directed him. So let's look at this, Jeremiah twenty nine ten. It says this, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place, this place being Jerusalem. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations. In all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So Jeremiah issues this promise that things look bleak, things look grim, and things are grim. But this punishment the Lord has issued from these countries coming in and taking over Israel, it's only going to last 70 years. And then God is saying, I will restore this city. I will bring you back to this place. 
And it's real interesting, one of the, some of the people that were taken to Babylon among them was Daniel. And if you read the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 5, it falls in right in this timeline, right after 605 B.C. So think 605 to 540 B.C. It's about when the events of Daniel 1 through 5 take place. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, you know that Daniel actually interpreted dreams for King Nebuchadnezzar, and that earned him a lot of favor, earned him a lot of wealth, and he became a very important citizen and kind of an official in the kingdom of Babylon. You've got to deal with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace and then coming out alive. Um, and so all the while, even while God's people are in exile, it's, it's like God is using these events like Daniel, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego to build favor among the Israelites with the kingdom that they live under and the kings that rule them. Um, and then in about 539 BC, you've got another major world event where the kingdom of Babylon is actually taken over by the kingdom of Persia under Cyrus the Great. So now they were taken away by Babylon, but then Babylon has now become Persia as that country has taken over. Um, and it's at this time, at 538 BC, that the king of Persia, Cyrus, sends some of the exiles back to Israel. So this is about 67 years into that 70-year promise. So they're coming up on the 70 years, and sure enough, Cyrus, the king of Persia, commissions and sends a group of Israelites to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city, which is just crazy, right? I mean, what what king would do that? Like, what king would take this, this um, nation that's been taken over that was once one of the most powerful nations in the world and send them away to go rebuild their capital city, right? I mean, that seems like a really, something supernatural would have to happen in that king's mind and heart to cause him to want to issue such a decree. But there's actually an account of that in the book of Ezra. This is when all these events that Zechariah is prophesying about are happening within the book of Ezra as a historical book. So let's look at Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. It says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord might be, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all of his people, may his God be with him, and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now again, if you, if you look at dates and timelines here, one of the real interesting things about this is when um, Cyrus issued this command was right around the same time of the incident of Daniel in the lion's den, where Daniel was one of the king's favorite. He's sent into the lion's den. He comes out alive, and the king basically says, all nations should fear and worship the God of Daniel. You see how God is using these events happening in the book of Daniel um, and these other books to influence and stir up the king's heart to have compassion on God's people to send them back to rebuild. So they go back, this group of exiles. One of the first things they do is they rebuild the altar so they can make sacrifices. Then they lay the foundation of the temple, and there's this moment where they're all singing, and some of the older generation is actually crying because they're, they're seeing just the foundation and remembering how great it was, and they're sad. But the 
younger generation who never saw the old temple are just excited and joyful. And it's kind of this monumental moment where they've laid the foundation. Now they're ready to really start um, building up on the temple. But then something happens in 536 BC. You see opposition to the temple. So again, you're, you're now 69 years roughly into this 70-year promise. So coming up on the time where God said, in 70 years, I'm going to restore you to your city and you're going to rebuild your city. It's going to be like it was. We're a year away from that. They're thinking things are going well. But then you've got this guy who's a, basically a neighbor. So his name's Tatanai. He's a governor of this area. He's not necessarily an authority over the Israelites. He's just kind of a, a peer next to them. Um, he basically looks over and says, hey, I don't like what they're doing over there. I don't like what they're building. I'm going to put a stop to it. So he and his buddies begin to harass them because of the, the way they want to change things and build on their property. Some say he was the fa- first um, founder of an HOA. Um, he basically said, I don't like what my neighbors are doing. I'm going to put a stop to it. So construction stops. It actually works. Um, they get fearful of these threats and what they're going to do to them if they keep building, so they just stop. And it sits that way for about 15 years. They're just afraid of Tatnai and what he's going to do. And by that time, the kingship has changed. Cyrus is no longer in charge. He has passed on, and now Darius is in charge. And that's where we enter in in about 520 B.C. That's when the book of Zechariah is written. And let's look at what was going on at that time historically in the book of Ezra. It says, now the prophets, so again, this is 15 years of just construction halting. Everything has stopped and no one has lifted a brick or done anything to help build the temple in 15 years because they're afraid of the Tatanine as HOA. So now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judea, Judah and Jerusalem, sorry, in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedach, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So basically, you've got these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, that after 15 years of God's people doing nothing, and just the, 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 the altar is built, the foundation is laid, but there's no temple, there's no walls. After 15 years of, of waiting on things to ease up or for God to just give them an indication to keep going, God essentially speaks to Zechariah and Haggai and says, hey, it's been long enough, 15 years has gone by, it's time to pick this thing back up. Because you got to think, again, this is right around the time of 70 years that God had promised things would get better. That time has come and gone. And things are maybe a little better because they're in Jerusalem, but it's a city of, of rubble and ruins. Um, and so things are really not better. It seems like God has not come through on his promise. And Zechariah and Haggai basically stand up and say, no, God will come through on his promise, but he's going to do it through your obedience, even in the midst of this opposition of Tatanai. And so they start building again, and Tatanai, of course, you know, he's probably got people watching him or whatever, like on a rotation. He comes over and he's like, hey, what are you guys doing? I thought we talked about this. You're not supposed to do this. Who gave you authority to do this? And the Israelites like, well, actually, the king did. Cyrus actually commissioned us to do this. And so Tatanai's thinking, well, Cyrus isn't in charge anymore, so we'll see about this. So he writes to King Darius, and he says, hey, these guys are building this temple. And by the way, this is a city that used to be a major powerhouse whose god was well-known all throughout the known world. 
you should not let them do this. This represents a threat to you and your kingdom. But these guys are over here saying that, you know, that a previous king told them they could do this. I doubt it. Maybe you should look in the records. So he challenges Darius, look in the records and see if that's true. Darius does. He finds out, sure enough, it is. There was a time when Cyrus sent them to do this. So Tatnai is basically trying to, trying to tattle on them, right? Well, if you're not going to listen to me, I'm going to go tell dad, right? Um, and then Darius's response is amazing. Like, it's totally not the response Tatnai was hoping for. So the king writes back to this letter. There's a record of it in Ezra 6, and it says this, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from Babylon, the river, from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his son. So not only does Darius write back and say, no, they can continue building, he says, and you're going to supply, by the way, the materials and supplies and resources they need to do it. So the, ter- the table turns on him. And he says, also, if that's not enough, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a dunghill. <laughs> so it's like, not only are you going to do this, but if you don't, very bad things are going to happen to you. I will make sure of this. Um, so again, not the response he was expecting or hoping for. And in fact, there's actually, within the last five years, there was an archaeological dig that found a parchment that is thought to be like a summary or some sort of a, uh, a cover letter to this, which is really cool because they, after they had tattled on essentially their neighbors, and this is what it says. This is that parchment that was recovered. Got to wait, letting the suspense build here. That's what it said. It's essentially what he told them, right? Got to tell on these guys. Things are not going to go well for you. All right, so... In all this, what we see is that this motivation to keep building despite the opposition um, was kind of rooted in these prophecies from Zechariah and Haggai that the Lord spoke to these prophets, and by their encouragement, they continued to, um, but they restarted building the city. And one of the kind of practical things we can observe here that is true for us as well is that obedience often precedes provision. They did not wait for God to get rid of Tatanai and solve this problem before they began obeying the command to rebuild this temple. But those threats were still there. There was still plenty of reason to believe, hey, if you start building, they're going to tattle on you, and this is not going to go well for you, right? Like, there was no assurance that when they started building, things were going to go well for them, other than them banking on God's promise to restore their city. They didn't wait for there to be green lights and everything at ease before they begin to follow through with obedience. And so that way for us too, right, that in our lives, that our obedience often precedes the Lord's provision for that obedience. So for instance, you may be, maybe you've been a member 
of churches or this church for a while, and maybe you've, you've never made a practice of giving regularly. That what, what Scripture would say to that is you may be worried that, well, if I start giving, I don't know how that income is going to be replaced or whatever. Maybe God is not going to provide the answer to that question until you obey, right? That we don't, we don't wait for God to line everything up or give us a raise before we can start giving, but we do that expecting and hoping and trusting that his provision will follow our obedience. You can apply the same thing to maybe you've got a friend who you want to share the gospel with, a friend who is not a Christian that doesn't know Jesus, and you think, man, if I get into that conversation, I don't know how that's going to go, I don't know how that's going to end, I don't know what I'm going to say. Well, maybe it would be good to plan some of that out, but part of it is going to be you just simply moving into that conversation, trusting that as I obey, God will provide what I need for that conversation. There's a lot of people in here who have adopted, and adoption can be really expensive, and it can be really scary, and you can think, well, I don't know how we're going to do this, or how we're going to manage our time when this happens, or how we're going to come up with the money needed to complete this adoption. But what we've seen time and time again in our body is the people doing that say, hey, we're going to obey now. We're not going to wait until God provides a big stack of money or an extra room in our house or a lot of free time before we do this, but we're going to walk in obedience, trusting that God's provision will follow and come behind our obedience. And sure enough, look what happens. You see it in Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. They begin building, and look what happens. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel. So essentially it works, right? That, that Zechariah and Haggai step in, they encourage the people to start building, they do, and they complete the temple. And that's what we're reading in the book of Zechariah, are the words Zechariah spoke to the people that encouraged them to restart the building even amidst great opposition. So that's the background of the book. Let's look now at the first chapter and make some observations here. So there's basically three sections in this first chapter. One is there's a call to repentance. Um, You see it in Zechariah chapter 1. Let's go ahead and read it, verses 1 through 4. In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried out, Thus says the Lord of hosts. In other words, look around you. Your, your fathers were warned to not depart from the ways of the Lord. They didn't, and look what happened. You see the city, the rubble, the, the, the desolation? That's the result of their disobedience. Do not be like them, but return from your evil ways. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? You just can imagine Zacharias saying this and them thinking about their, their, their moms, dads, grandparents, your fathers, where are they? Well, clearly they've, they've passed, right? They're not here with us anymore. And the prophets, do they live forever? Those who spoke the word of God to them, are they still around? No, of course, they've died. Verse 6, 
God's saying, but my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? Did they not outlast the lives of your fathers and the prophets who spoke them? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. So let's kind of summarize that section. You've got them recognizing and admitting that the situation we're in with this desolate city is due to the sin of us and our fathers. Um, and you've got them seeing God's power through his enduring word. Zechariah's calling their attention to the, the, the power of God's word that has, and promises of Jeremiah that have outlasted the lives of Jeremiah himself as well as anyone else at that time that, that men come and go, but the word of the Lord does not return void, and it endures forever. And on a practical note there for us, I think about what kind of legacy do we leave, right? I mean, I'm sure everyone has their own version of this, but as a, as a dad, I think about what am I going to leave behind for my kids that's going to outlast me? If you're a dad, you, you've had these thoughts, I'm sure, or this, this idea of, man, wouldn't it be great if, if when I'm gone, right, that I will have made enough money so that there will be something left for my kids to kind of bless them, give them a head start on buying a house or something, right? Some way for them to kind of have something that I leave that kind of helps them along the way even after I'm gone. Uh, maybe for you that's your career, that you want to create or accomplish something that outlasts your life. And one of the things we learn from Scripture is that if you want to leave a lasting legacy, one of the things, maybe the only thing you can bank on that will outlast you is imparting the word of the Lord to the next generation. It will not return void. It will outlast you. You can amass a great amount of wealth and your kids could squander it in a year. may not last. You may not be able to amass a lot of wealth. Who knows? But you can for sure pass on to the next generation, impart to them the teachings and statutes of the Lord that will continue to do their job, to work and shape the hearts of the next generation and the generation after that, generation after generation after generation, long after you are long and forgotten. That is a legacy within your ability to leave that will outlast you. The next section we have this, these four horsemen. Um, and you may think those, these four horsemen that are sent out, um, these four different colors, again, some of this real odd imagery here that they're among the myrtle trees. I don't know if they were normal myrtles or, or crepe myrtles or what they were, but they were among the myrtle trees, apparently. So they're, they're sent out, and they come back bringing a report. Um, some people... Um, when they hear this, their first thought, if you're real familiar with the book of Revelation, is, man, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. doesn't seem to be much, if any, connection there, from what I understand. They're, they're very different job. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are very active. These guys are just passive. They're just bringing back a report. They're also uh, different colors as well. So it seems to be just kind of two different things there. Um, but chapter 1, verse 11, they go out and patrol the earth, and look what they say. We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. That sounds like a great report, right? In verse 11, we've, we've, we've looked around, we've patrolled the known world, 
everything is at ease. I mean, that's, that's what we want, right? There was, there was peace in the Middle East at this time, right? Which you would think, like, hey, that's, that's a good thing. That's what we've always wanted. But then the angel is actually distraught by that news, which is surprising. Verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? So this report of everything is at rest, everything's just kind of business as usual, is, is bad news to the angel because the angel like the people at the time are banking on the 70-year promise that has now come and gone and is saying, God, how long before you, you stir things up and you act and you shake the situation from where it is and restore your city, Jerusalem? And then in verse 16, the God through the angel answers this and, the, and God basically says, that, says the Lord spoke comforting words to the angel and then the angel declared to Zechariah, here's what you need to say to the people because they're thinking the same thing. God, how long before this changes, right? They're, again, they're, they're inactive. They're not rebuilding the city and God's answer is, well, just start doing it, right? And here's what he says. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. So the angel tells Zechariah to say, thus says the Lord, like, it's going to happen. It's going to get better. Jerusalem is going to overflow with prosperity. So with that, I want to I point something out here. Um, this, you're going to see all throughout the book of Zechariah, there are these kind of uh, multi-layered prophecies. And you're going to see kind of a threefold fulfillment of these prophecies about Jerusalem. What Zechariah and these guys wanted, they just wanted the city to be back like it was. They wanted the temple back. They wanted a city of their own to live in, right? They wanted their land and their city back. And there's prophecies like, yeah, that's going to happen. But if you look at a lot of these prophecies about Jerusalem, he's promising a lot more than just new walls and a new temple. Um, he's promising that the nations are going to be gathered to the city of Jerusalem. And God is going to, you're going to see it later on, wipe away all the sins of the people in a single day at Jerusalem. Wow, that doesn't seem like that fits what's going on in their timeline. So these, these prophecies are kind of multi-layered, that they're kind of talking about what's about to happen, like in the next few years with the rebuilding of the city. But they're also looking forward to a time when God is going to send Jesus to the city of Jerusalem to accomplish a deliverance and a restoration beyond what they could possibly imagine at that time, that God would send his son to die on the cross to take the penalty of their sins and wipe away in one day all the sin and all the guilt that they had because of their sin and fully restore them in a way that they could not imagine. And there's even another layer to that in some of the imagery about Jerusalem that looks forward and, and is very similar to the language you see in the book of Revelation that in the second coming of Jesus, when the new Jerusalem descends to earth, this new city of God where we are fully restored and God walks with us in the city. There's no need of the sun because of the glory of the Lord is so bright in this new Jerusalem where the work Jesus did on the cross and the Jerusalem 2,000 years ago finally reaches its true fulfillment when he comes back 
and we live in the unparalleled peace and prosperity at the return of Christ. So as we move through the book, look for these kind of multifaceted fulfillments of these prophecies, especially about the city of Jerusalem. So one thing I think we can learn about that is that God's timing, though often obscure, um, is obscure. His promises are certain, right? That just like the timing of that was obscure to them, I'm sure what some of these prophecies we're going to see in Zechariah when, when he talked about removing their iniquity in a single day and, and gathering the, all the nations to be blessed by this city, they're probably thinking, what in the world is that talking about? Or when is God going to do this? 70 years have come and gone. Is he going to do this or not? Like, similarly, we on this side of the cross, right, we see these promises about what's to come with the second coming of Jesus and with the, the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and new earth. And some of it is obscure. That's why you have so many different ideas about what revelation means and it's just hard to understand. But nevertheless, though the timing is obscure, the promises themselves are certain. And they're to be listened to. They're to be heeded. They're to be sought after. Even though we know we probably can't fully understand them, we're to gain as much understanding as we can so that we can bank and hope on what God has said is to come with the new Jerusalem. And then lastly, this section of uh, 18 through 21 is this, and again, some odd imagery of horns and craftsmen, which is essentially, just to boil it down, it's this idea that horns represent military powers. And God has said there, there's been four horns, and we don't know if that's like referring to four specific nations or just kind of nations in general, just plural. Um, but these other nations have oppressed Israel, and God says, but I'm going to raise up these craftsmen or blacksmiths to decimate these horns, to, to bring relief to the oppression that's been given to God's people. God is going to, just like God has brought oppression to Israel as punishment through these outside nations, God is going to raise up other nations to alleviate that oppression by those nations taking over. And that's exactly what you see. Remember, right after Zechariah charged everyone to, hey, start building again, even though there's, these, there's this horn of oppression, your neighbor's hat and I, right? Even though he's there, start building anyways, and what does God do? Well, he raises up the blacksmith of King Darius to tell Tatnai he better knock it off or he's going to impale him with a beam from his house, right? He tells him, like, that needs to stop. So you see God fulfilling this even within this book. Um, one of the, I'm, I'm going to have to geek out a little here in a theological sense for you. Um, so I, um, a few, I don't know if it's a few years ago, this is a long time ago, it was back in like, uh, I was probably 20 or so, um, I saw um, uh, on sale the complete um, commentary of scripture by John Calvin. It's like, you know, 26 books. It's like this massive commentary. It's normally like $2,000 for the whole set. I got it for 100 bucks, and I was like, I'm taking it. So I bought that thing. And so I love using that. I love referencing it. It's got pretty much every book of the Bible is covered. And I was studying it for, for this um, a few years ago. I was just studying the book of Zechariah, just kind of for my own quiet time, and pulled out that commentary. And I don't normally read the like the translator's note, because who does that, right? I mean, that's just weird. Um, but for some reason, it, I, just, I just felt compelled to read what the translator said about this. So who translated this from Latin anyways? Turns out it was John Owen, who actually is like a real famous Puritan theologian, who translated Calvin's Latin commentary into English. I'm like, okay, that's kind of cool. So I start reading this, and he goes on to talk about how, man, I used to not really have a lot of use for the minor prophets, but now after reading this commentary, it's like some of my favorite 
um, parts of the Bible. And he goes on to say, in fact, translating this commentary has been the happiest time of my life. (laughs) So, if anyone is like struggling with depression right now, and you happen to know Latin, there's a remedy for you, you know? Start translating this commentary, and it'll brighten you right up, I guess. Um, it's a funny deal, but he's so complimentary of this, uh, this commentary. So I limited it to one today, but I do want to read um, something he's, Calvin says about this whole horns and blacksmiths thing, talking about how we see the church often oppressed, especially in certain countries or parts of the world, or even here, that there's this opposition, and it can cause us to fear of, man, is, is the church and this particular world or at large just going to be snuffed out beyond, um, beyond recovery. And he says this, let us not then wonder, talking about this, this happened then and it happens now, let us not then wonder if the world rage on every side against the church, nor is it new things that many enemies from various parts unite together and that God's church should thus have to bear many assaults. In the meantime, let this be our consolation, that God has many smiths at hand. In other words, when the world pushes back against the church and threatens to snuff it out, there's a temptation to despair and say, how will God deliver us from this? And he basically says, Look, God has been delivering his people out of oppression for centuries, for millennia, right? Think about Israel and Egypt. God found a way for them to leave their slavery to go build their own kingdom and their own future with the Egyptians throwing gold at them on their way out. God takes this people, Israel, who are taken away as captives, thinking they'll probably never return again, only to have a king say, hey, go rebuild the capital city that we conquered in your temple and practice your, your worship there. That God will find a way in his sovereignty, God will make a way despite what looks like a bleak future, to deliver and preserve his work and his people. So I hope we'll we'll get a lot of good insight like that out of this when we go through the book of Zechariah. A couple kind of closing notes here. I want to let you know why we as elders wanted to go through this book. One is that I think it's it's good for us to remember how to chew our food. (laughs) Um, Don't get me wrong, like I love like little two-minute snippet teachings of things where guys like take a whole lot of stuff and boil it down into like a two-minute video with like lyrics and graphics where it's all condensed and it's all the truth is all sitting there packaged for you easy to digest but there's also something really healthy about coming to some of these passages that when you first read them you're like what in the world could that possibly mean and having to dig into that to gain some understanding to have to chew up our food a little bit is a good thing for us Um, And then secondly, it's going to help us. I think it'll expand and enlarge and enrich our view of the cross and other New Testament realities. Just like, think about if you read in the New Testament that Jesus is the Passover lamb, but you had no Old Testament context of what the Passover was or what a Passover lamb was, that phrase would make no sense to you, right? That Old Testament understanding and the promises God made to his people inform our understanding and enrich our understanding of Jesus and what he's done. And in the same way, I think Zechariah is going to enrich our understanding of the cross and the gospel. So um, it'll, be, it'll be fun, and, and it's, it's cooler than you think it is. So let's pray. Um, God, I thank you for getting to go through this book, and I pray that these truths would just do just that, not just be, um, not just be, 
you know, things we have to chew on and work hard at just to gain a bunch of intellectual head knowledge for Bible trivia or whatever, but that would be things we would learn that would transform and enrich um, our understanding of what Jesus has done, of our understanding of our need for a deliverance that's outside of ourselves, that's beyond anything we can accomplish. Um, and God, we entrust these weeks to you and ask that you would, that your word would not return void, but you would use this book to shape our lives and our understanding and our affections. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.